This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on music in the post-civil rights era, highlighting artists such as James Brown, Marvin Gaye, and George Clinton. It's taught by Flagler College professor Michael Butler. Okay, guys, welcome to the latest lecture in History 336, which is Rock and Roll History in the United States. I'm Dr. Butler, and today the topic that we are going to address is Black Rock during the post-civil rights era. So I'll share my screen. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. The time frame that we are using for the lecture today is roughly 1966 to 1978. Those are both the uh, historical starting points in 66 for reasons that hopefully will become clear as we progress. And 1978 is the release date of the last work of art that we're going to mention today. So to set the historical context, one of the things that we have to do is situate the music into the historical period so that the connection between the period and the art is abundantly clear. What then do we mean when we use a term in academia like post-civil rights era? Well, I think one of the things that it indicates is a changing civil rights struggle. The music of this period is important because it represents, in cultural terms, the limits of civil rights era legislation. I have a couple of photographs on the slide that highlight the two legislative triumphs of the traditional civil rights movement. These are the de jure victories, the victories against legal segregation. That's what the movement initially from the beginning of the master narrative in 1954 with the Brown v. Board decision, all the way through 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, these are the two most important legislative triumphs of the mainstream movement. July 2nd, 1964, Civil Rights Act is signed. A year later, August 6th, 1965, the Voting Rights Act is signed into law. Now, these two pieces of legislation were the results of monumental grassroots protests, community organizing, and organizational decisions from both the top down and the bottom up. But it does begin this phase in the civil rights struggle that we're gonna discuss today. And that is the shift from the de jure forms of segregation, which is segregation by law, to de facto forms of segregation. And that's where the limits of legislation come in. Legislation reverses discriminatory laws. They integrate public facilities. They mandate hiring minimums for all citizens. They give protection for registration movements. But they don't address economic disparities. 
They don't address unequal living conditions. They don't address the legacies of racism that permeate society, particularly outside of the South. So in the urban North, what we call de facto segregation actually increased between the mid 1950s and 1960s, right? During this period in urban areas, we have a phenomenon known as white flight where whites that live inside of city limits move in large part because the cities are becoming too identifiably black. As a result, urban centers become increasingly minority, particularly African-American, with African-American living in communities with failing schools, substandard housing, and most importantly, increasingly strained, which are already bad, but increasingly strained relationships with local police. These are elements that the traditional movement that civil rights legislation did not address. So it's not a surprise that literally days after the last major, major legislative victory of the movement, the Voting Rights Act, we have the most destructive race riot in America since 1919. And it occurred in a Los Angeles neighborhood that was known as Watts, right? As Dr. King later said, the riot is the language of the unheard. And for me, what these urban riots reveal are those limits of legislation that I just addressed. Watts goes up in flames beginning late August 1965. If you look at the reason that the Watts riot begins, if you look at the event that begins it, you're sort of missing the issue of de facto segregation, right? The event that begins the Watts riot was the spark that ignites a tinderbox that had been building and building and building for years. It revolved around resentment of police brutality, economic powerlessness, poverty, unemployment all of the things that legislation don't touch. 35,000 people estimated participate. 35,000 people, over 4,000 arrests. The National Guard is sent to restore order. 4,000 arrests, 10,000 injuries, $40 million in property damage. $40 million in 1965, 34 African-Americans killed. Unfortunately, Watts is not an aberration. From 1964 to 1968, between 64 and 68, there were over 300 urban-based riots that occurred in the United States. Most are outside of the South, 
over 300 urban-based riots between 64 and 68. In 1967, there were 109. In 1967 alone, 109 urban-based race riots. The list keeps going on and on, guys. 250 deaths in total, billions of dollars in property damage, over 60,000 arrests, and that's before Dr. King's assassination on April 4, 1968. As a result of King's assassination in Memphis, we have race riots that engulf over 100 cities because the urban riot is the language of the unheard. What this demonstrates is a shift in the national civil rights movement, right? The shift from de jure forms of segregation to more de facto forms of what we call today systemic racism. On top of that, we have alternative methods that African-Americans use to combat these persistent trends, the rise of black power. You know, we tend to think of the civil rights movement as all Dr. King all the time, and that's just not the case. You know, as I say in many classes, you guys have heard me say this before, the movement made King, King didn't make the movement. And after 1965, the movement was in search of an identity, at least from King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, right? Black power is not just a slogan. Black power is an identity. Black power is a way of life that addressed the systemic racism that groups like SCLC and the NAACP were powerless to change. Now, the, the point where black power becomes a national phrase came in Greenwood, Mississippi in 1966, right? Stokely Carmichael, this individual here, who was a veteran of civil rights campaigns in the South, marching with Dr. King during the quote-unquote march against fear in that state in 1966, after a particularly violent response by Mississippi police to the marchers who had camped out overnight, Stokely Carmichael gave his rallying cry, his famous slogan, which he had used many times before now, but this is the first time it becomes a national phrase because of the media coverage. What do we want black power? What do we want black power? Stokely Carmichael Black Power and the organization that he was elected to lead in 1966, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. SNCC abandoned interracial alliances. It rejected nonviolence as a tactic. Black Power results in independent Black political organizing and, most importantly, armed self-defense. Many of its members embrace Marxism as the only way to change America's racist trajectory. 
But black power as a slogan is a unifying element within the African-American community. You know, and when we think black power, we look, think of these images. We think of the formation that same year of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which comes out of the Bay Area with Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, armed, berets, bandoliers of weapons, black pants, leather jackets, the black power clenched fist salute that Tommy Smith and John Carlos gave in the 1968 election, uh, the 1968 Olympics. Black power means to African-Americans, particularly younger African-Americans, it means self-reliance, it means racial pride, it means personal assertion. To white Americans, it meant violence. To white Americans, it is a frightening proposition. Look, we remember the Black Panthers in popular memory as being armed, but we don't remember what they were really about, and that is community empowerment. We don't talk about their free breakfast programs. We don't talk about the fact that the Black Panthers organize transportation for family members to visit incarcerated relatives. The sickle cell, the free clinics and sickle cell tests that are given, right? That is the essence of what black power was. The perception was something that was totally different. Black power has a political wing. It has a political objective, but more importantly, and this is where the rock and roll element comes in. Black power has a very strong cultural, a very strong cultural element. Culturally speaking, the phrase black is beautiful characterized the meaning of black power in the mid-1960s into the late 1960s. It was an ethnic heritage that is embraced, not something to be ashamed of. African names, dress, the natural hairstyle, the Afro, becomes a statement against literal white processing. It's not a surprise then that this cultural identity, this ideology of pride, surfaces in the popular music of the time. The music is going to reflect a profound shift in African-American identity. The music reflects a profound shift in African-American identity, right? We've talked in the past about soul, what soul represented, what soul was, what soul is. But it's during the mid to late 1960s that the woke younger brother of soul emerges, and that is called funk. Funk is the maturation of soul in a changing America. And no one reflected the shift from soul to funk in American popular music more than James Brown.
we talked about James Brown before in this course, right? We talked about James Brown as the hardest working man in show business. We talked about James Brown as Mr. Please, please, please in 1956. But what we haven't talked about is how James Brown is the pivotal figure in this post-civil rights movement. And when I say post-civil rights, what I mean is the movement beyond 1965, right? When de facto forms of segregation are the political objective and the social objective, right? That's what I mean. And that's what most historians mean when they use a term like post-civil rights era. We're looking at the post-65 movement in the period beyond integration. Hmm, sounds like a good book title. Funk is built around a prominent baseline. Polyrhythmic instrumentation, right? From guitars to horns to keyboards, drums, rhythm and the groove are more important than melody. One of the better lines that I've read in describing funk is that it's a form of music in which every musician treats their instrument as if it were a drum. Again, reiterating the importance of rhythm and the groove. Funk, like, as I said, it's less woke, young, older brother soul. Funk is more about feeling. It's about moving, personal expression. But funk also consciously addressed the harsh realities of urban life. That's the difference. At least the most important historical differences for the purpose of this lecture, right? Funk, as we've discussed in this class before, as so many other rock and roll offshoots, represents both continuity and change. Continuity in the way that music addresses contemporary social and economic situations, particularly for Black Americans, but change in the way the music is articulated. So it's both continuity and change, right? Funk is not different as a musical trend, but it is different in the elements that it stresses. Look, the continuity here goes back to a quote from Andrew Young, Dr. King's right-hand man in SCLC, right? That music carried the message of the civil rights movement in a way that even movement leaders could not. Music carried the messages of the civil rights movement in a way that even movement leaders could not. That's the accessibility of music. That's the accessibility of someone like James Brown, right? Of course, as performer, singer, arranger, band leader, we've discussed the importance of James Brown before. But what we're going to discuss now, which is even more important, is James Brown as cultural icon, as a representation of Black power. And of course, 
it came with his 1968 anthem, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. We can't stop until we get our share. James Brown wants to transcend even music. He wants to be the symbol of what he called, his quote, quote, the symbol of the black entrepreneur. He wants to be the symbol of black financial success as a means for racial uplift. I'll post some of the lyrics for you to read um, at your own leisure. James Brown emphasizes the importance of education and economic investment, investment in a black economy. There were five Black-owned radio stations in the United States in 1968, and James Brown owned two. It's the classical rags-to-riches story that James Brown would shine shoes on the steps of the Augusta, Georgia radio station that he later bought. And on that radio station, he covered topics of social importances for black listeners, right? So it's not just a music that reflects pride in one's blackness and cultural heritage, but it's also long-term economic uplift. And you can see some of the examples of this from a couple of the images that are provided on the PowerPoint, right? James Brown started the Gold Platter Restaurant, an invitation for financial independence, right? Where he wanted soul food served in predominantly black communities to black customers with black ownership. He sponsored a scholarship month, concerts that read engagements during the month will give scholarships to students. And in red, it indicates scholarships where the scholarships will be presented to black students. Look, the song titles go from Papa's Got a Brand New Bag pre-68 to titles like, I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Open the door, I'll get it myself. And get up, get into it, get involved. He doesn't soften his message for a predominantly white audience, and he does not compromise his black cultural identity. In fact, 
he becomes a representation of black power at a pivotal point in American history. Look, in, in the 1970s, he ties Elvis Presley with the most hits that reach the pop charts. Continuity and change. James Brown's unique, but he also represents the business acumen of Barry Gordy, the rough soul-based sound of an artist like Wilson Pickett, and he possessed the artistic freedom that the Beatles possessed. It leads James Brown into some relatively interesting predicaments. If he's moving into the political realms with his emphasis of black pride and economic uplift, it makes for a strange photo op in 19... 72. James Brown endorsed Richard Nixon as president of the United States because of his economic policies. The more things change in history, the more they stay the same. Right, Kanye? James Brown catches uh, a lot of criticism from the black community because of this economic-based, to him, common-sense approach to fighting de facto forms of segregation. You did it with the dollar. But James Brown is not, in and of himself, the only person that represented this shift in black popular music emphasis during the post-civil rights era. No, I think one of the most interesting parts of this shift from accommodationism to black freedom on a cultural level is the awakening of Motown. Now, we've talked about Motown in the past. We talked about Barry Gordy. We talked about how Motown wrote, quote, great melodies with great stories. It was the sound of young America. Black music written by, produced by, owned by black artists that target a predominantly white audience. But Motown also experiences a transformation beginning in 1967. In 1967, Barry Gordy moves the Motown Business Center to Los Angeles. At the same time, you know, if you read interviews with Motown artists, you, you see that they have a little more freedom under what was a pretty rough uh, uh, managerial style, shall we say, of Barry Gordy. Gordy had tight control over all things Motown. And when the business center moves to LA, it gives a little more freedom for those who are left behind. Freedom for people like Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye 
underwent both a personal crisis in the late 60s, but also a social awakening. I mean, it would be hard to live in Detroit during the racial riots that occurred there in the late 60s and not be impacted by the social and political movement that was engulfing America, right? His brother served three tours in Vietnam. Frankie Gay. Marvin Gay was impacted by what happened in Watts, Detroit, what was happening in Vietnam. And in early 1971, the four dead in Ohio that perished at Kent State. As he said, quote, with the world exploding around me, how am I supposed to keep singing love songs? And it's with that mindset that Marvin Gaye, influenced by stories his brother told in which they both were reduced to tears, enters the studio and records what's often called the first concept album in black pop music. It's called What's Going On. What I thought I would do here is shift and show a video that comes through a wonderful website called teachrock.org. Um, and what I'm going to do is, is play one of the videos that they have posted um, on their site that is of Marvin Gaye performing live what's going on. So again, what I'm going to ask you to do is not just watch the performance, but also listen to the lyrics because the lyrics are transformative. <laughs> not only emphasizes the chorus of what's going on, which is both a prayer and a plea, as I've read. I think that that's a great, great way of understanding that lyric. It's a prayer and it's a plea. It's hope and it's desperation simultaneously, right? It is social commentary. And even in the presentation, which is later televised, it intersperses the song with images of ordinary people living their lives in urban America the vast majority of whom are black, right? The hope of the young child, the struggle of the people with their heads in their hands is really what Marvin Gaye hoped to get across. It's really interesting because Barry Gordy, when he first heard what's going on, he said that he hated it and would never release it. 
it becomes one of the best-selling album releases in Motown history. And its words remain relevant today. I mean, look at the songs. It begins very Beatles-like, Sgt. Peppers-like, with two different versions of what's going on. It begins and ends the album. And you have songs titled Flying High in the Friendly Sky, which is about the drug abuse that had dominates, that dominates now the inner city. Save the children, God is love. Inner city blues makes me want to holler. And mercy, mercy me. Ecology, which is about the deterioration of the environment before discussing the deterioration of the environment, was on the forefront of American citizens. So in that way, every single song addresses a contemporary social issue, which makes it what's going on. The first concept record in black popular music. Marvin Gaye is not alone, though. He's not the only Motown artist who is influenced by this struggle against the persistence of de facto forms of segregation. Even groups like the Temptations. Yeah, a different form of the Temptations. This is a much different Temptations than the one that achieved so much critical acclaim and popular success with songs like My Girl. These are the Temptations who in 1972 released a song that symbolizes the struggles of blacks who never, black men who never knew their father. A 12 minute long song on the original album titled, well, a 12 minute long song on the album. The song is titled Papa Was a Rolling Stone. There is a minute and 52 that passes before the first lyrics are sung. And it's very, very different than the typical Motown release. You can hear the funk influences. Papa was rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. L-O-A-N. The economic struggles that came for African-American families in the mid-1970s. Even Motown's most artistically gifted, arguably, well, maybe it's not arguable, one of the most proficient musicians on the Motown label, 
who was once called Little Stevie Wonder, is also influenced by this shift in social consciousness and artistic responsibility. In 1973, Stevie Wonder released Inner Visions. That's not Stevie Wonder. Temptations want to keep going for the next eight minutes with Papa Was a Rolling Stone, but we can't let it. Stevie Wonder writes serious lyrics with complex arrangements. That is one of his many calling cards. The fact that he writes, produces, and plays all of the instruments on inner visions is remarkable, but not as remarkable as the lyrical contents. Yeah, Stevie Wonder as well tackles urban issues. He's not as confrontational as Marvin Gaye, arguably, or as confrontational as uh, Sly and the Family Stone and there's a riot going on. But he is one of the most decorated musicians to deal explicitly with what we call systemic racism. I mean, again, look at these song titles that are on Inner Visions. Too High, which again is about the plague of drug use and drug abuse. He's Mr. Know-It-All, which is anti-Nixon. Higher Ground. Transcendence as a people. But perhaps most importantly is a story that he tells about the struggles to escape the South only to end up impoverished in the urban North. That song title is Living for the City. A very upbeat song, obviously. It's a classic, obviously. But um, the lyrics of Living for the City is one of the things that really makes the song stand out, right? His father works some days for 14 hours, and you can bet he barely makes a dollar. His sister's black, but she is sure not pretty. Her skin is short, but Lord, her legs are sturdy. To walk to school, she's got to get up early. Her clothes are old, but are never dirty. There's a pride and a dignity that Stevie Wonder projects 
on Living for the City. Living for the City was actually released in 73. So again, we are looking at this post-civil rights era, not just beyond integration, again, another great book title, but also beyond the death of Dr. King, right? Living for the City is one of the first soul slash funk songs to use the everyday sounds of the city, like traffic and sirens in the song. Um, the social commentary, which is about the struggle and the pride and the dignity that African-Americans living in these conditions carried themselves with is not to be underestimated. Now, the musical blending that we've discussed eventually merges with cinema for a unique expression of cultural freedom. And that's one of the things that I think is important about this topic, is that musically it's important for the themes, stories, and issues that it highlights. But music, rock and roll, funk, whatever you wanna call it, is one of the cultural expressions of the civil rights movement. The ability, the freedom to express yourself artistically if you're a black artist is one of the most misunderstood legacies of the greater freedom struggle. It's not just political. It's not just in some minor ways economic, but it's also cultural. The freedom to express yourself as a black artist openly, honestly, and without constraint is an extension of what freedom meant to those involved in the movement. So from that paradigm and in that way, the rise of black exploitation is another articulation of the freedom struggle and those goals, right? So black exploitation. Black exploitation represents, I mean, the, the root words obviously are exploitation and black. It's a new film genre that tells stories that resonate with an African-American audience from an African-American perspective. It's a rejection of the way African-Americans were used in cinema. And the soundtrack was typically driven by funk. So we see film and music coincide in a new expression of cultural independence in the post-civil rights era. Sweet, sweet backs. Badass Song, 1971, is often noted as the first black exploitation film. The brainchild of Melvin Van Peoples, Sweetback, is a strong, aggressive male anti-hero. Situated in a crime-ridden gritty, realistic inner-city America in which Sweetback becomes a vigilante who fights 
quote unquote, the man. I thought that what we may do is watch a brief trailer of Sweetback to give you an idea of how the film was presented to a predominantly black audience. So with that in mind, I'll share the screen and we'll watch the first 40 seconds or so of the Sweet Sweet Back trailer. Look, it was rated X because of the violence and sexual content. And you can see even on the movie poster and in the trailers, it says rated X by an all white jury. The tagline is, you bled my mama, you bled my papa, you won't bleed me. Take him downtown to make us look good. Why did you people start getting so interested in black folks? How many men were in the ambush? You all pretty good used to me slapping up on some white cops. I want them, do you hear? And I want them now. Now you gonna have to make like that old bear. You got some back back. Sweet Sweet Back became required viewing by members of the Black Panther Party. It was that incendiary and that quote unquote revolutionary. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but this was how the film ended. Dedicated to all the brothers and sisters who've had enough of the man. In a 40-second clip, that is what black exploitation is all about. Sticking it to the man, as Zach has so cleverly pointed out in the chat. Yes, the white man. You saw the police who said, you know, we have to take a black person down to the station so we look good. That was my white person voice, by the way. It's pretty good. It's pretty incendiary. It's cultural rebellion, right? And the connection here is that funk is the soundtrack for many of these films. Isaac Hayes, James Brown even, Curtis Mayfield, contribute scores to several of these songs and it gives black artists the power to address the state of their own communities with a distinctively black voice. Now let me go back to the PowerPoint because one of the things that I want to point out is that Motown is not the only label that we have discussed that's impacted by this period and become really important contributors to the cultural movement that funk, black exploitation represent in the post-civil rights era, but also Stax. Remember, Stax is the label of Memphis. Stax is the label of Otis Redding, Sam and Dave. Stacks, like Motown, 
opens the West Coast office in 1968. Stax changes in many ways after the assassination of Dr. King. New ownership. Al Bell, an African-American who is over at Studio Productions, wants to get involved in film. Black exploitation gives Stax the opportunity to, to enter this game. And the person who had become a cultural icon, I maintain, more impactful than even James Brown initially, is a person who released an album named after his unique nickname, Black Moses. His name was Isaac Hayes. And it's with the film Shaft with Richard Roundtree that Stax and Isaac Hayes become firmly situated in both the music, which reflects the changes of the era, and also the films that personify this new sense of freedom that Black artists had. Look, the look, the sound, the artistry of Isaac Hayes, are incomparable. His theme from Shaft, the film, wins four Grammy Awards. The first black song, pop song, to chart on the popular charts, to use the, the wah-wah guitar effect, part talking, part singing. It's often said that the theme from Shaft is the predecessor of modern rap. And it's not just because of how often it's sampled. So let me share the screen and we'll watch a brief clip of Isaac Hayes playing the theme from Shaft in 1973. Who is a man that would risk his neck for his brother, man? Can you dig it? Who's a cat that won't come out when there's danger all about? Right on. They say this cat chef is a bad mother. But I'm talking about chef. He's a complicated man. And no one understands him but his woman. The bald head, the sunglasses, the chains, which he said in an interview, he wore so many gold chains is in a conscious attempt to reverse the image of what the black man in chains meant. Think about that. That's a much more direct use of symbols and black material success to do what James Brown was trying to do. At the Academy Awards in 1972, he became the first African-American to win an Oscar for a non-acting category when Shaft, the theme from Shaft won best original song. And for what it's worth, the date that he took to the Academy Awards was his grandmother. Others follow suit. 
Superfly by Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield provides the soundtrack for the film and contributes a song titled Freddy's Dead about a drug dealer who becomes a victim of his own supply. Continuing the theme of inner city problems that the black community faced. I mean, we could go even deeper if time allowed and talk about uh, the fact that Curtis Mayfield was the lead singer of The Impressions, who released a song which really embodied the nonviolent movement of the early 1960s, People Get Ready, right? And now he's singing Freddie's Dead. That personifies both the movement's evolution and the artistic evolution that's occurring simultaneously. Stax eventually grows in ambition. And this idea of a black Woodstock is produced, developed in 1972 that brought together a variety of different social commentary forms. Right now, the artistic expression that I mentioned, as you see, uh, Superfly, 1972, Curtis Mayfield, you can see on the, uh, the poster here, black exploitation, evidently, with Curtis Mayfield being the leader. 1974, Foxy Brown. Now we have Pam Greer. Now we have females. I don't want you to think that this is solely a male-dominated movement. It's not male-dominated. There's something to be said for the way that Black masculinity is portrayed in these cultural forms that we've discussed, but that's another lecture for another day. In 1974, Pam Greer enters the Black exploitation genre as Foxy Brown. Don't mess around with Foxy Brown. She's the meanest chick in town, according to the poster. But Watch Stacks brings a lot of the elements together that we've discussed in this class thus far. We saw it with Woodstock, the festival movement, right? We saw it with the release of a double album commemorating the festival, a film that's made to commercially benefit on the popularity of the festival. Stacks in perhaps this most ambitious project in label history, wants to host in the LA Coliseum a Blackwood stock as part of the Watts Community Festival. They perform or promote a concert that is titled Watts Stacks. Artists, predominantly Stax artists, play for free. They take no money for performing. Schlitz underwrites the costs 
of the concert. Tickets are a dollar. And every penny went back into the rebuilding of whites to the black community. Political figures are there. Athletes. I mean, the procession begins with the singing of the black national anthem. A film is made that not just commemorated the musical performances, but it also provided profound social commentary. Due in part because a young actor provided a man on the ground commentary and approach during the film. His name was Richard Pryor. The festival matures as a forum for black social commentary. Now, I don't want you to be confused with the year. 1972, 1972 is the, um, the year that the concert is put on, but it's 1973 that the film White Stacks is recorded. And of course, White Stacks, as you can tell here, culminates with the appearance of Black Moses. Isaac Hayes himself. It's a pretty great scene. You should do yourself a favor and watch the White Stacks film. You know, Jesse Jackson starts it with his chant, I am somebody, I am somebody. But the moment when Isaac Hayes is introduced, Jesse Jackson removes his hat and he is about to fanboy out. Jesse Jackson has forgotten the purpose of why he's there and has just become a devotee of Black Moses in that moment. And it's a wonderful thing to see. So, White Stacks demonstrates the convergence of the festival, a record label social awakening, and musical experimentation, all of which peak with the arrival of the mothership. George Clinton and his creation, Parliament Funkadelic, in my opinion, is the pinnacle of this topic. Creative black freedom in the post-civil rights era culminates with Parliament Funkadelic. Parliament Funkadelic and its creator, George Clinton, former DJ, Influenced by Jimi Hendrix, Sly and the Family Stone, Miles Davis. A DJ who plays Alice Cooper in Genesis, prog rock. Influenced by science fiction and humor and comic books. Represents funk without boundaries. Black music is performance art. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's Afrofuturism is the term that it introduces. Afrofuturism. Black-based science fiction approached to social change. 
It combines funk, social commentary, and elements of glam. Parliament Funkadelic is the name that Clinton gave to his two groups. Parliament, more commercial. Funkadelic, more experimental. Here are the album covers for 1972's America Eats Its Young with the Statue of Liberty devouring young people. Here is the 1975 cover of Parliament's Chocolate City, Washington, D.C. Parliament Funkadelic George Clinton represented the pinnacle of black creative freedom in the post-civil rights era. And it's hard to argue with that assessment when you consider such lyrics as free your mind and your ass will follow or let your booty do its duty. Please don't put that on my student evaluations, by the way. Those are quotes that administration just don't need to know about. So maybe the best clip to end the presentation with is the arrival of a literal spaceship and the performance, albeit briefly in a clip, of George Clinton leading Parliament Funkadelic in a song titled, Give Up the Funk. This is the culmination of freedom, struggle, objects, objectives in a cultural format. demonstrates the arrival of something like George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, 
right? The mainstream success reveals that cultural freedom is an important legacy of the civil rights movement. So the importance, right? One of the things you guys know that I like to do is that with the end of every lecture is to recap, to have a few points that I want to leave you with about the importance of the topic that we've just spent 70 minutes covering. One, this topic, the rise of black popular music in the post-civil rights era demonstrates that the civil rights movement continued beyond the 1960s. It evolved to highlight social injustice and reality. The movement objectives are expressed in new ways. James Brown, Marvin Gaye, Isaac Hayes. The movement evolves and its objectives are expressed in new forms, but it persists. It didn't end in 1965. It didn't end in 1968 and it's still not over. Number two, the music and imagery of funk empower African-Americans by allowing black communities to tell their stories in their own ways. The music and images of funk empower African-Americans by allowing those who live in urban areas to tell their own stories in their own unique ways. That's important. Three, the music and the culture demonstrates the limits of the traditional civil rights struggle. Right? So while de jure forms of segregation are over, those triumphs are limited. The music demonstrates the limitations of the traditional movement because it highlights those injustices. Finally, I think the point that connects this entire topic together is that an important component of the black freedom struggle is that it gave creative people a sense of cultural liberation. One of the important legacies of the civil rights movement, the quote unquote black freedom struggle, is that it gives creative people a sense of cultural liberation that they would not have possessed had the mainstream movement not occurred. So cultural liberation is a very real consequence of the mainstream freedom struggle. And with that, I'll take some of the questions that you guys have asked in the chat room. Okay, so we have the lyrics of I'm Black and I'm Proud. Um, Ray thought that the let your booty do it duties quote 
was clever. It's not mine. It's George Clinton's. For the people who are watching today, I appreciate them joining us. Uh, I hope, along with the students, that you learned a little bit about the topic at hand and perhaps have developed a new appreciation for the relationship between history, popular culture, and how the two often merge together in ways that defy simplified separation. So thanks to the class, Flagler College 2020, it's been a ride. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.